0: Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you to search the Scriptures with us again as we continue to investigate Jesus' favorite topic, the Kingdom of God. We've been pointing out that there's a serious lack in the minds of many churchgoers in regard to their comprehension of that 77% of our Bible we call the Old Testament. That three-quarters of the whole of Scripture really should be designated the Hebrew Bible. It was that Bible that shaped the whole of Jesus' worldview. It gave him a sense of his own identity. He found himself in those pages. It was that Bible, the Hebrew Bible, which Mary read to Jesus constantly as she brought up the young Messiah. The stories of the Hebrew Bible were the stories Jesus read. The songs there were the songs that he sang. The closer you get to the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the closer, in a sense, you come to the heart of Jesus. Do you remember that Jesus said, don't think for a moment that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I came not to abolish them, but to bring out their deepest meaning, to bring out the essence of what they really were pointing to, and that was to Jesus and his message of the kingdom. You will find that marvelously instructive verse in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do you remember also that Paul instructed the young Timothy to continue in the sacred scriptures that he'd known since childhood? In 2 Timothy 3.15 we read this, You, Timothy, from childhood have known the sacred writings, the scriptures, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Messiah Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate to the task, equipped for every good work. What a tremendous recommendation there for the Hebrew Bible, what we unfortunately call the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets and the Writings as Jesus designated in Luke 24, verse 44. I wonder if you'd be interested in knowing that we actually do not have the Old Testament books in the same order as Jesus would have read them. The order of the books of the Old Testament as you find them in your Bibles today dates from the Latin church, from the time of Jerome. But Jesus and the Jews had them in a different order. They started with the same five books as we have, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and then came what they called the former prophets, that's to say Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. These were followed by the three great prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then came the twelve, in the same order as we have them, the twelve minor prophets. It was only then that we came to the third division of the Hebrew Bible as Jesus knew it, namely the writings of or the Psalms. The Psalms were, in fact, the head book, or the chief book of that section of writings, the first book, and so we begin with Psalms, and then Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther, and then followed Daniel as being a very special prophet, and therefore deserving to be in this third section of the Hebrew Bible, the writings, Daniel, and then Ezra and Nehemiah, and finally then, as a kind of summary of the whole of the Old Testament. 1st and 2nd Chronicles. That's the order of the books as Jesus would have read them, and it actually has the advantage of putting the prophets of Israel in a more prominent position. Only when we've thoroughly digested the material in the great prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are we ready then to deal with the Psalms and the rest of the writings, which in a sense are commentary on those earlier sections of the Hebrew Bible, namely the Law and the Prophets. You may like to read the Bible in that order sometime and see if it doesn't make better sense. Certainly that's the order of the books as Jesus knew them and he put his stamp of approval on that order in Luke 24, verse 44, where he referred to the Hebrew Bible as the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms or writings. When we come to the New Testament, the order of the books as we now have them is also not the order as it is found in the earliest manuscript arrangement. We start, of course, with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the book of Acts, but following those books, in the earliest manuscript order, we have not the epistles of Paul, but the letters of James, Peter, John, and Jude, as being so-called general epistles and written to all the churches. Then we come to the epistles of Paul. Paul's epistles were written to individual churches, and we should always bear in mind the warning of Peter in 2 Peter 3. But Paul's letters can be difficult for the uninitiated, for the unstable, or the unlearned. Paul, you see, was a rabbi, trained in the theology of the time at the hands of Gamaliel, and his letters can easily be twisted, and Peter warned that many were unable to grasp the deep meaning of Paul, and so it's unwise then that we should begin with the book of Romans. And you may like to reflect on the fact that the book of Romans enjoys its prominent position now in the Bible order mainly because of the Roman Catholic Church, but in the original manuscripts, the epistles of Paul were not to be read until we'd fully digested the work of Peter, James, John, and Jude. Of course, the last book in the New Testament canon is the book of Revelation, and that's the book which so beautifully brings to a close God's great plan to introduce the kingdom of God on the earth. A most useful anchor for your Bible study is Revelation chapter eleven, verses fifteen through eighteen. We read there that the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there arose loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign for ever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who was, because you have taken up your great power and you have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and the time of your wrath came, and the time came also for the dead to be judged, and the time to give their reward to your bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. There you have a graphic description of the introduction of the kingdom of God at the seventh trumpet. That's the time of the resurrection of the dead. That's the time when the faithful of all the ages will come alive at what is called in the book of Revelation the first resurrection, and that first resurrection introduces the manifested kingdom of God on the earth when Christ will reign for a thousand years. That is the simple scheme proposed by the book of Revelation and corroborated, in fact, by the whole of the rest of Scripture. It is only at the seventh trumpet that the kingdom of God may properly be said to have come in power. That's the event, then, which signals the coming to life again of all the faithful of all the ages so that they can indeed take part in the kingdom of God and rule with Christ for a thousand years. It would be wise in defining the kingdom of God to begin with that magnificent text in Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 18. It's a considerable mistake to define the kingdom of God as merely the rule of God in our hearts. Now, of course, it's clear that God must reign in our hearts and minds, but that's not what the Hebrew prophets meant by the kingdom of God, first and foremost, and it's not what Jesus meant by the kingdom either, when he introduced his good news about the kingdom of God in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. If you examine the kingdom of God in its Hebrew environment, if you search the scriptures as we should to find the roots of the kingdom of God idea in the Hebrew Bible, we will find that the kingdom of God is a political event. It's a geographical event, it's a military event, and it's also a spiritual event. We in the West make the great mistake of separating what is physical from what is spiritual. In the mind of the Bible writers, however, that kind of division is not acceptable. You can have a political event which is also a spiritual event because God is involved in it. And that's precisely the case with the Kingdom of God. The Kingdom of God is an event of the future. It's a time coming when the world will undergo a complete renewal and a brand new era of peace and prosperity will cover this globe. The kingdom of God is a military event because God will intervene to fight the evil forces of this earth and defeat them. It's a geographical event because this kingdom of God will be established upon the earth, and this is a spiritual event because Jesus as Messiah will return, and as one driven by the Spirit as an immortal being, along with his fellow saints, the other immortals through resurrection. Jesus and those saints will rule the earth for a thousand years and all of this plain information can be gathered by putting two essential texts together in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, we have a most useful summary of the whole story of God's plan to establish sound government upon this earth. In that verse, Revelation 5, verse 9, The 24 elders burst forth into a hymn of praise to the Lamb, the Messiah, and they sing this song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have formed them into a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign as kings upon the earth that verse then coupled with the other one that we just read in revelation chapter 11 verses 15 to 18 give us a very clear picture of the initiation and inauguration of the coming kingdom of god at which time god through his messiah and accompanied by the saints of all the ages will in fact reign as kings upon the earth that great event has plainly not happened yet but it's the great hope of the christian church could it not provide a rallying point for the fragmented churches to come together in agreement that our hope is indeed the hope for which Jesus asks us to pray when we say, Thy kingdom come. We're praying there for the arrival of Jesus in the future to change the condition of our world forever and to establish on earth that wonderful kingdom of God foreseen by all the prophets and announced by Jesus in his good news or gospel about the kingdom of God. If we listen carefully to those verses in the book of Revelation, and we add to it then the one in Matthew 5, verse 5, where Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, they are going to inherit the earth. We shall understand that the scene of the coming kingdom of God is to be this earth purified and renewed. Heaven in the Bible is nowhere the destination of the dying. Heaven is not the scene of God's future. The arena in which all of these wonderful promises will come to pass is to be this earth refreshed and renewed and reorganized as God intended it to be in the first place. There's to be a return to the conditions of paradise, the conditions of Eden, when Jesus comes back to establish the kingdom of God. It was that kingdom that Jesus and Paul announced in their gospel about the kingdom of God. We're coming to the end of our time for today. We invite you once again to check our findings carefully in the Bible. Look up the verses we've been referring to in their context and feel the force of them straight from the Bible itself. Remember that Jesus was a Jew whose teaching must be understood in his own first century environment and context. We must beware of reading our own assumptions and traditions and prejudices into the Bible. We want to read the truth of what Jesus taught straight out of the Bible itself. Join us again as we continue to probe these vital questions about life and immortality as Jesus offers it to us in his good news about the kingdom of God.